It's always uh, nice. Miles and I have talked about this. Um, it's sneaky when we're up here by ourselves because you can't actually tell how tall we are. And then I got to stand next to Rob Payton this morning and then Will just now. So now you actually know that I'm short and so is Miles. <laughs> um, I met somebody in Birmingham who's like, you're actually short in person. I'm like, yeah, well, when I'm the only one up there, it's kind of sneaky, right? Um, I, who, does anybody in the room like mixing it up, like doing things differently, spontaneously? Just raise your hand if that's you. Okay, a few of us. And now if you're like me and you would say yes when I can control it, raise your hand. So we're really, just to tell you guys, we're really not okay with change or spontaneity. That's the secret. But we're going to start a little differently this morning because I have the mic and can control the change. So um, we're going to start with a story this morning just to get our, our hearts set for, for what's going to happen. So we're going to put a picture up on the screen right behind me. This is Jim and Elizabeth Elliot are their names. Um, many of you might have heard this story before, but just want to set the tone with a little bit of their story this morning. So Jim Elliott graduated from Wheaton Bible College up in Illinois in 1949. He grew up in church in Portland, Oregon, and had a heart for missions from an early age. Uh, a missionary came and spoke at his church when he was a teenager, shout out you section, um, and had a heart. There we go. We're feeling good after tides, guys. We're feeling real good. Um, he had his heart set on mission. And so went to Wheaton studied the Bible, studied missions. Um, and then after he graduated from Wheaton in 1949, he spent a couple years in Oklahoma studying unwritten languages. Um, he really had a heart for people who had not heard the gospel. So he's like, okay, I'm gonna study unwritten languages so we can figure out how to communicate with people like that because they have not heard the name of Jesus. Um, and then the Lord also put on his heart the country of Ecuador and specifically the Quechua people. Nobody corrected me after the first one. If you know the people group I'm talking about and I'm saying their name wrong, please let me know. Um, a large people group in the highlands of Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia. And um, so kind of moved, moved to Ecuador in uh, 1952, I believe, um, and was in the capital for a little while, then moved to a village kind of closer, a little base camp for some of the missionaries and started doing missionary work among that people group. Um, during that time, he actually met Elizabeth, uh, formerly Elizabeth Howard, while he was at Wheaton. So college students, there's a chance you meet your spouse at college. That's not why you're here, though. Um, just a reminder, or if you're at camp and you're watching online, that's not why you come to Auburn. Um, it might happen, but that's not the primary reason. Um, I always got to remind people about that, right? So they met there. They didn't start dating, but she actually ended up uh, living in Quito, Ecuador, around when he did. So she also had a heart for Ecuador and, by her own words, also was a little interested in Jim. Um, and so they ended up getting engaged and married in 1953. And so they were working together in this small village, reaching out to the Quechua people, doing all this missionary work. And then um, a girl from a tribe called the Huarani um, came and was living in that village with them. And so they learned about this tribe. Um, one of the tribes that lived deep in the jungle had not really any contact with outsiders, so much so that they didn't really trust anybody that they didn't know. Um, there were some companies doing oil drilling and different things like that that had to abandon sites close to their village because they were very wary of outsiders and different things like that. And so Jim's heart was breaking for them because he's like, they definitely haven't heard the gospel. So him and four other missionaries, they started to make a plan of, okay, how are we gonna reach these people? One of them was a pilot and they had a little um, small plane there. And so they started flying over the village. And because of this young woman who came from the tribe, they knew a little bit of the language. And so they would, over the loudspeaker of the plane, fly over the village and kind of shout out friendly phrases in their language just to start contact before they, you know, they were there in person per se. So they did that for a little while. Um, during that time, as they were kind of 
starting this uh, interaction with this tribe. Jim and Elizabeth welcomed a daughter, Valerie, um, into their lives. And so they then, after a little while of, of doing that, flying over the village, shouting out friendly phrases, they started dropping gifts. Um, and that was well received. They seemed like the villagers kind of started expecting them at regular times. They would get excited about the gifts that they sent, machetes and just different tools that they could use. Um, and they actually, the villagers started sending gifts back up. They would drop like a rope with a basket and they would send stuff back up to the missionaries. So the missionaries like, okay, this is going well. Um, and then January, 1956, they were like, let's try to actually make some contact. So they um, landed kind of across the river from the tribe and ended up um, kind of just seeing each other, having a brief interaction and then flying away. And they were like this, okay, that went really well. Um, and so a couple days later, they flew over the village. They said, hey, meet us at that beach, landed there. They kind of set up a camp and um, they were like, come meet us there. Um, they had said that to the village. So two women, an, an older woman and a younger woman and a younger man came out of the woods, started hanging out with the missionaries and they hung out all day. So the missionaries are like, this is going amazing, right? Like they hung out, they could converse a little bit just because of the few phrases that Jim and the other missionaries knew. Um, and then as throughout the day, Jim and some of the other missionaries had a journal and they kind of wrote out that um, throughout the day, they started speaking more and more, even though they couldn't understand them because they were speaking their native language. So they're like, okay, this is all going well. Um, the younger woman and man left earlier, the older woman stayed for a little while and then she left towards the end of the day. What they didn't know was the young man and the young woman from the tribe were kind of trying to date. Um, so the older woman had come with them kind of as a chaperone for this situation to meet these weird people on the beach. Um, super romantic date, I guess. But they were getting in trouble. They got in trouble because they came back without this chaperone lady. Um, and so they ended up lying and saying they were attacked. The older woman came back and they're like, no, she was like, no, it's, I promise they're safe. Like was telling them all this and they didn't believe her. So unbeknownst to Jim and the other missionaries, the um, Hurani people set up basically an ambush. The next day, three women come out of the um, jungle. Jim and the other missionaries start looking, talking. They're like, this seems to go well. And then out of nowhere, a bunch of men from the tribe came out and killed Jim and the other missionaries with him. They were all carrying weapons, but they had planned. They were like, if we're attacked, we're only using these to fire in the air. We're not going to kill these people, even if they attack us. All five of them died. That's an intense way to start, but I wanted to start that way to remind us that this is not just like a cultural thing that we do. This is not just like a tradition that we're a part of. This is not something that we live in the South and we do. We do this because the name of Jesus needs to go out to the world, and we are called to carry that. So I want to read um, a quote. Elizabeth, uh, Jim's wife, wrote this in a, in a biography about him, kind of in the intro. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It says, Jim's aim was to know God, his course, obedience, the only course that could lead to the fulfillment of his aim. His end was what some would call an extraordinary death, although in facing death, he had quietly pointed out that many have died because of obedience to God. He and the other men with whom he died were hailed as heroes, martyrs. I do not approve, nor would they have approved. Is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for him after all so great? Is not the second the logical conclusion of the first? Furthermore, to live for God is to die daily, as the Apostle Paul put it. It is to lose everything that we may gain Christ. It is in thus laying down our lives that we find them. We've been in this series talking about different people throughout the scriptures responding to God with availability and obedience. And so... I didn't want to waste any time this morning and start and set our hearts in that direction of we are here 
to encounter the word of God, not because I prepared or am reading the right story or a story that really speaks to you or we had amazing worship, which worship was incredibly powerful. It feels like everybody in here is ready to go. But because the Holy Spirit speaks in this moment, moves in your heart, moves through my mouth, and we all collectively together encounter what God is speaking to us. So I just want us to come with that expectation. If you are a note taker, the title of the final sermon of our Here I Am series is going to be For His Name. For His Name. For the name of Jesus. That is why we gather. That's why we live our lives the way we do. And so let's lean in. If you uh, are new, you're like, okay, I just walked in. Welcome. We don't always start so intensely, um, but welcome. Thank you for coming. We're so glad you're here. Would love to connect with you. Um, today, if you saw on your way in, our final uh, Bible character in the series is going to be a guy named Ananias. Look at the person next to you and say, Ananias. Look at the person you ignored and say, not Ananias, as I heard this week. Not Ananias. Yeah. Ananias. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and hold them up for me. Hold them up. We'll do a quick Bible drill. All right. I know Father's Day is next week. We will talk about it more next week. I'm so excited for next week. But if you are a dad in the room, keep your Bibles in the air. Everybody else put it down. You can go ahead and flip to Acts 9. All right. Shout out dads. A few people are excited about dads. It's good. It's good. Dads, keep your Bibles in the air. If you are a dad in the room and you have a daughter, please keep your Bibles in the air. All right, you are my guys. Found out this week that we're having a baby girl in November. Very excited. So I need to speak with each of you and hear all of the tips because um, boys are completely different. You guys can go ahead and flip to Acts 9. So much so that um, after the first gathering, I heard that my son was attacking people and kids. So if that was your child, I'm so sorry. He was taken out and put in timeout. Um, we're really working on gentle. Um, don't judge me if you see my son with a baby doll. We're really trying to, we're going to get that to acclimate him to the idea of another baby. Um, he's a little possessive of his mother. So I'm really concerned about gentle. So we'll get there. We'll get there. He'll learn. He'll learn. So Acts 9 is the only of the characters that is in the New Testament, and we'll see there's some specific connections. But as we've looked at each of these characters in the series, and if you are just joining us, I really encourage you to go back. Each of the, the, the people that we've looked at in this series are at key moments of redemptive history where God's kind of doing something new. He's, he's starting a new part of his redemptive story, and he calls to a specific person, and they obey and, and they respond in obedience and availability, and he uses them to kind of take the next step in his story. And so I would encourage you, go back and listen to the other ones. It's been such an incredible series. I'm sad to see it go, um, but excited about this morning. So we're in Acts. Always important when you go to a book of the Bible, you want to know context, who wrote it, why they wrote it, things like that. So Acts was written by Luke. Luke, the gospel, and Acts are kind of a two-part book um, right next to each other, addressed to a guy named Theophilus. Um, we think he was a real person, but more than that, he's just kind of a, a figure for all of the church. He's writing so that people know these specific things that happen. Luke was pretty attention to detail and different things like that. But Acts is the book that takes us from the ministry of Jesus into the church starting and the church being launched. And so this is kind of, if you will, the theme verse of Acts. I'm gonna read it from Acts 1. You don't have to flip there. Um, Acts 1.8, it says, this is Jesus talking right before he ascends into heaven after he's been resurrected. It says, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you actually see that progress start to happen in the book of Acts. It kind of starts centralized in Jerusalem. They start expanding to Judea and Samaria. The story we're gonna read today actually is happening in Samaria. And then we see it extend to the ends of the earth. So we see the church being initiated by the event of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming and now moving through God's people so that we can spread out and tell the world about Jesus. That's the context we're stepping into. If you're there in Acts 9, verse 1, say, I'm there. Let's read together. In verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who, wreaks, who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. Has he not come here for this purpose? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Ananias in verse 10 says, here I am, Lord. An important just Bible study note that I would like to share and make right now. Um, an important book that you might not know about is called the Septuagint, uh, abbreviated LXX, Roman numerals for 70, because of in historically we think 70 Hebrew scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, which was important because this happened right before Jesus was on the earth. At that time, Greek was the language of the known world, and so they translated it to Greek so more people could read it. That's important because key concepts and phrases like tabernacle and things like that, when they get translated into Greek, the New Testament writers use those Greek words to talk about those things, and sometimes we miss those connections. So right here reading this, I'm like, okay, is this just a random situation where some of the translations say, here I am, so it made it into this series? That's at least how my mind works. 
this is actually like directly connected to the other things that we've read, other stories that we've read about Samuel and Abraham and all the other stories in the series. It uses the exact same Greek words that they use. In essence, a translation of the Hebrew word hanani that we've been saying is, here I am, behold me, here's all of me. It signifies this availability, their acceptance of, okay, I'm going to do something. Whatever you say, God, I'm here and available for you to speak and me to obey. So he, that's what he says. And then if you grow up, if you grew up in church, you know who Saul is. But in case you don't, let's talk about who Saul is. In Acts 7, I believe a couple chapters before, um, we see the first Christian martyr, Stephen, by name, get stoned to death. And the guy presiding over it is a young Pharisee named Saul, incredibly zealous for the word of God, incredibly zealous to obey. And it says in the word of God, if there are people who are idolatrous or doing ridiculous things um, against who God is and his word, that they are supposed to wipe them out. So in his zeal, he is trying to obey what God said by persecuting and killing Christians because he thinks that they are blaspheming God. So he has all of this zeal, all of this fervor, and he is going to Damascus to arrest and murder Christians. Then we have this incredible moment of Jesus coming and saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, I'm not persecuting you, Lord. And he's, you have persecuted Jesus. He had persecuted Jesus because Jesus says, what you do to the least of these, you've done to me. And so he's like, you're persecuting me. Now rise and go into the city. And he's blinded. We think this is, this is Saul. This story is a story of Saul becoming an apostle to the nations. He's the only one of the apostles that we count who received the Holy Spirit outside of Jerusalem. So he's an apostle to the nations. And we actually see Saul was sent to Damascus to go to the synagogues to arrest and murder Christians. Instead, he goes to the synagogues and speaks out the name of Jesus. So no matter where you are at today, God can do something crazy in a moment. No matter how far you feel from God, God can speak to you right now. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It doesn't matter what you did last week. The grace of God is enough for you today. Nobody is too far gone. The person that you might be thinking about who you think is too far gone is not too far gone. This is a man who attacked and sought out Christians to murder. And God in a moment says, I'm changing everything about your story. And now you are going to be a speaker, an ambassador for my name. And so we see then Saul, eventually his name is changed to Paul, and he writes a ton of the books of the, of the New Testament, and we see his story changed there. So the question that I kind of ask is, as I'm reading this, one, why do we have this kind of interruption in Paul's story? And we'll get to that because it seems like this is a transition point. The next story in the book of Acts, um, a, a chapter later in chapter 10, is, is Peter being told by God that the Gentiles can receive Christ too. So we see the apostle to the Gentiles in chapter 9, and then Peter getting told the Gentiles can have Jesus too. So we see that happening. We see that arc in the book of Acts. Why would this be interrupted by this story? Why not just say, you know, a few days later a disciple came and he regained his sight. Why do we have this specific guy by name? There's a couple other Ananiases in the Bible, but this is the only story of this Ananias. This is the only thing we know about him. But what we do know about him is he was faithful where he was at. He had somehow heard of Jesus in Damascus, and he was a disciple. He was actively following Christ in Damascus. He was, he was being obedient where he was, and he knew enough to even respond when God called to him. We've seen that in some of the other stories. Samuel not knowing yet how to respond. He knew how to respond to God. He was there. He was available. He was listening. We also know that his name, Ananias, is the Greek translation or, or just way of spelling the name Hananiah. 
And if that doesn't sound familiar to you, the name Shadrach might sound familiar to you. If you went to VBS and grew up in Bible school, those, he was one of the three friends that were in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. And Hananiah, that name means the Lord is gracious. God sent a man named the Lord is gracious to, so, to show grace to Paul, who in his own words deserves no grace. We see him talk about that in many of his epistles of there's no reason the Lord should have, should have shown me a murderer of Christians, an attacker of the way of Jesus, any grace whatsoever. But he does. He sends him a man named the Lord is gracious. We also see that despite everything, Ananias is obedient to walk by faith and not by sight. He comes to God and he's like, listen, I've heard about this guy. All I know about this man is that he came here to arrest and kill people like me. That's all Ananias knows about Saul. And yet God is still telling him, go because I'm going to use him for my purpose, for my name. And so we see Ananias struggling with that a little bit, but yet still obedient. And so back to the question of why, why would we have this footnote in, in Paul's story, in Saul, Paul's story? It's because the story is not about Paul. He is one of, without question, one of the most significant figures in the Bible, but he is no more relevant to the plans of God than you are. The same spirit that came and used Paul for everything that he did in his life is the same spirit that is moving in this room, lives in you if you are in Christ, and wants to use your life for his glory and his name. Ananias is not just like a small footnote. He is a disciple faithfully following the way of Jesus, just like we are called to. So as we've looked at all of these stories of people responding obediently. We're not in the exact same context that they are. But our response and our posture needs to be the same because God wants to use you just as much as he used them. That'll look different. We live in a completely different time, a completely different place. You know different people and have opportunities and challenges that they did not have. But he is here speaking to us through the word of God. That's why we gather on Sunday so that we might be used for his name. This is not just a footnote in Paul's story. This is a step of faithfulness. We see one person responding faithfully to the story of God. The headline is Jesus wins, and that's a story that you're invited to if you're here today. So then we see in verse 15, I'm going to read verse 15 again if you go up with me. We see that Ananias was like, God, what's the deal? Because this guy is killing Christians. I don't really want to go to him. Um, and then we see God respond in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You'll notice there, God didn't tell Ananias he wasn't going to die. He, he told him that he's going to use Saul. He didn't say, I've already talked to him. He said he's had a vision of a guy named Ananias coming and healing him. But Ananias has no idea if he's going to go tell him this and get killed by him and the Lord will use him later. God doesn't even answer Ananias' fear because here's, here's the thing that we need to see through that. The safest place for you and I to be, no matter what our circumstance is, is walking with God. The will of God is not a map, we've said here before. It is a match that lights the fire of walking with Jesus in you. These, like, you don't have to discern what the will of God is. The will of God is you walking with Jesus every single day. And no matter if you are in the least safe country for an American Christian to be in, you are the safest when you are walking with God. So at this point, it is not about Ananias' security or safety. Is it about, it's about his obedience and availability to what God's calling him to do, to be used for the purposes of God. 
And so a verse we talk about a lot in that regard is Romans 8.28. I quote this a lot, and sometimes I struggle with it. Um, you'll, you probably know this verse if you've been in church for a little while. I'm going to read it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is Paul writing this. Now named Paul many years after he was Saul. Many years after this moment, he's been called by God. And he knows that God will work all things in his life for the good of those who love him, including Paul, including you, including me, for God's purposes. Paul did not have the nicest, smoothest life after he started following Jesus. He listed out in one of his letters, he was flogged, he was stoned to death seemingly multiple times, he was in prison, he suffered again and again and again, and yet he still was able to write the phrase, God works all things for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. So then we have to ask, what is his purpose? And quite simply, his purpose is that his name would be glorified throughout the entire earth. Eventually he will come back and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And until then, the church is the one spreading this good news, spreading the truth that Jesus is king, Jesus wins, and above everything else, our life is to be devoted to him. He is the greatest good. He is the definition of good. There is no good or thing higher to be worshipped. Whatever is the most important thing in your life, and when we have to ask ourselves what that is constantly, because different things sneak in, family, job, security, whatever it is, those things sneak in and become the best thing in our life. But the most important thing is walking with Jesus and proclaiming the truth that Jesus wins, Jesus reigns. That is his purpose. And so then the other part of that is the good of those who love him is very often not what we think the good is. Right? Like if I asked you, if we really thought about it, you're like, okay, God works all things for the good of those who love him. I love him. Okay. So these are the things that are good. Nice house. My kids are safe. They do well in sports. You know, if I'm in school, maybe I do well in sports, I get good grades, I date and marry that girl, go to that city. Like, we start listing out all these things that are good. But as we've talked about through this entire series, more often than not, your obedience will not result in what you think it will. It'll be better. And it will not result in the cheap things that we substitute for life with Christ. Everything here, kids doing well family doing well, leading your family well, loving people well, being blessed with the prosperity of where we live. Like all of these things that we talk about are not bad things. But the problem is they become the most important thing and that is a cheap substitute for life with Christ. All of the good that we have here, none of it comes to us except through Christ. All good things come through him. But none of it will satisfy and all of it is a, a cheap replica, a piece of a fraction of what we can see it's like you're looking at a mirror and you only see the corner of what you can see. That is the glory that will be revealed in us when Christ comes back. So we have to look towards that future and look toward the reality of we will suffer and struggle here. Those things are not evidence of God not working all things for good in us. And this is where I'm going to put a line up behind me. God cares more about your eternal transformation than he does your temporary security. I think about that for a second. More than he cares about you being set up for retirement well, more than he cares about your kid getting into that school, more than he cares about you getting into that school if you're in high school or middle school, shout out you section. Whatever the thing is in your life that this world has propped up as, this is the highest good, this is the thing. The safety of your kids, I know some of you in this room have kids serving in other countries this summer. Whatever it is, 
God cares more about the transformation of you and your family and the people around you for his glory and his name's sake than he does about your temporary security. Jesus said, do not fear the one that can kill the body but not the soul. We, we do not fear death when we are in Christ because we know death has no power anymore. It has no hold anymore. That is the one thing that will happen to every human, and that's the one thing that we all fear above everything else. But Christ has conquered death. So we no longer fear that. We talk about this verse a lot when it comes to baptisms in Revelation. We see that the enemy is accusing the, the, bro- the brothers and sisters day and night. He's accusing us day and night with correct accusations. We are all broken. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. So his accusations are not lies. They are truth most of the time. We do not measure up to God's standard of holiness. But we have one who did, who died for us, who was resurrected, who sent the Spirit. He died in our place. And because of that, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Our life is evidence. Our lives are evidences that Christ is working in us, that we are being transformed into his image. That is the purpose. Like if you're just talking about your life, your purpose is not to find security for yourself or your family or whatever is the most important thing to you. Your purpose is to look more and more like Jesus every day. He's transforming you to the image of Christ so that people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And the next part of that verse is they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Like that is, that is, that is the highest thing that we can point to is loving our own life, and even that we do not hold back when God calls. Ananias stepped in faith to surrender his life to accomplish the purposes of God, if that is what we are called to. And, and going back to when Gage talked about faith, we don't just do that recklessly. We don't just do that randomly. Faith is not just like, oh, God will figure it out. It's, it is believing what God has said in spite of the circumstances and the situations that you see. And so this, this is what gets me. I'm going to just ask two questions today. First question is, do you believe that God speaks to you personally? It's really hard. You can, you can, because of the culture we live in, you can probably guess at some of the things that have a hold on your heart or the things that you prioritize over Christ calling you. But you cannot know what he is calling you to specifically do unless you hear from him personally. I heard somebody say, it's no wonder that you can't keep anything down all week if all you do is eat on Sunday. Meaning, if this is the only time that you think you're hearing from the Lord, it's no wonder that you can't walk in the fruit of the Spirit and, and patience with your family and doing bold things in your life for Christ. And boldness will look different here. Some people in this room, I'm confident, are called to be missionaries across the world in places where they will have to risk their life. But all of us should have that perspective of, I am willing to lay my life down for the name of Jesus. And through that, we have to hear him speak to us personally through his word, through prayer, through the people around us. And the second part of that question is, are you willing to obey when he calls you to something that doesn't make sense? It didn't make any sense for Ananias to go. He was being faithful. He heard God speak. And often we run that, that God speaking through us through the what makes sense in this world, not what is God saying. When he speaks to us directly, we have to obey. And so I'm going to read... Um, just another passage in Matthew. This is Jesus speaking, Matthew 16, 21. It'll be on the screen behind me. You don't have to flip there. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. How often do we run what God says to us through the filter of human concerns, not godly concerns? How often do we run what God says to us through, how is that going to work out for me and my family? How is that going to make me look? What are they going to think about that? Oh, that's going to put me in danger of of this happening to me. Oh, they might not like me if I say that to them. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus said that, take up your cross and follow me before he went to the cross. His disciples know what he's saying. Okay, that's like a pretty big sacrifice to lay down your life in that way. Many of us are not risking our life going to work tomorrow. We're not risking our lives coming here and gathering. We're not risking our lives going to community group. We're not risking our lives by sharing Jesus. We're not risking our lives by discipling our kids. But what that does mean is daily, what is taking up your cross look like in your life? What does that mean for you? Because there's things, there's probably multiple things, but there might be one thing you're thinking about right now that has a hold on your heart that would hurt so badly to lose. So that's the second question I'm going to ask if you want to write it down. What would kill you to lose? There's a crucifixion of your flesh that has to happen daily. And it's hard to do that without hearing the voice of God daily. But every day we have to lay it down. Lord, everything I have, my family, my life, my job, my finances, all of it. It is all yours to do with what you will, and I will obey when you tell me what to do with it. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it takes a lot of pressing into what he's saying. But what would it kill you to lose? Would it be your family? Would it be your house, your car, that sport, that person, a scholarship, college students? What is it? Your life? What would kill you to lose? So I'm going to put this uh, picture back up on the screen of uh, Elizabeth and Valerie Elliott. And I didn't even, I didn't even think about this in the first gathering, but then my wife said to me after this, that her sitting here listening to this was challenging. They lost a husband and a father for the sake of the gospel. Valerie was like three months old when Jim Elliott died for the sake of the gospel. The great part about it is is we all know it does not end with death. The story never ends with death when Jesus is involved. The Elliot story does not end with Jim dying. They didn't come back to the United States and stay safe with maybe Elizabeth's parents or find somewhere else to live. Not two years later, Elizabeth and Valerie are living in the same village that killed Jim, sharing the gospel with the very people that killed their husband and father. Many of the people who killed Jim and the other missionaries came to know Christ because of their faithfulness. In the face of everything, in the face of anything that made sense, they felt God calling them back, Elizabeth and some of the other wives of those missionaries, back to that village because the story never ends in death. Whatever you feel like you're going to have to give up for God, it will not kill you. He will use it for your good and for his glory. So what would it kill you to lose? 
Your availability will transform you and your family. You do not know who is at stake with your obedience because the truth of the matter is, is your life is not about you. If you make your life all about you or even your family, like you're like, oh, it's not about me because it's about my family. Really, the only person you can impact is you. Because if we're being really honest, most of the time when we use our family as a shield for stepping in faith, it's so that we look good to look like we have a good family. So what would it kill you to lose? Because when we are willing to lay it all down, Christ will use you in ways you do not expect to reach the person you last expect to do things in your job and your life and your family that will transform this world to look more like the kingdom of God. Christ said the kingdom is here now and we are the ones he chose to spread it. He could have stayed on this earth, holes in his hands and all of us seeing him. He could be up here doing a way better job than me. The physical risen Christ could have stayed on this earth, but he said, it's better that I go, that the Holy Spirit may come and indwell each of us and that we would spread out so that the world may see what is happening here, what is happening in your life. The death to life transformation, a murderer of Christians to the apostle to the nations. That is the kind of transformation I'm talking about if you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you have that opportunity. But what would it kill you to lose? What would it kill me to lose? And so we're going to do communion. We keep doing that because it is important that we look to the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We look to the one who laid his life down for us as our example, our image, the one that we are to model our lives after. If you don't have a communion set, just raise your hand and somebody will come to you. One of the first times in John's gospel that Jesus kind of sets up communion is right after the feeding of the 5,000, right? You know that story. He multiplies the bread and the fishes, feeds 5,000 more than that. It was like 5,000 men plus women and children. So he feeds all these people. The crowds keep following him. And he basically turns around and says, listen, you cannot be my disciple unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he said it just about that blatantly. And they're all like, yeah, I'm not really into cannibalism, so I'm out. And one of my favorite lines in all of scripture is, is he, turns, he turns to the disciples and, who are still with him, and he's like, aren't you going to leave too? This is, is this such our teaching. Aren't you going to go too to be sustained on, on me, my blood, my body, broken for you? He knew that's what it meant, even though they didn't at the time. And Peter's response to that is... Lord, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So where else are we going to go? There is nothing and no one in this world that can satisfy the desires for life, fulfillment, purposes in each of our hearts. I don't know what that is or what it looks like for you because we all feel that differently, but nothing in this world can satisfy. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's all meaningless without God. None of it matters. You can attain everything that you desire, everything you hope and dream for, and it will not fulfill you unless you are living life daily with Christ. So as we take the body and the blood, look to him who is our example. Look to him who laid his life down for us that we may know life and life to the full. That's why he came. I'm gonna pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Lord, I pray even now in this moment that you would turn hearts towards you that you would open up each of our hearts to the fact that we don't know what it'll take for you to use us. We don't know what we'll have to sacrifice. We don't know what the thing is. Would you show us, Father, what are we holding on to? What is the thing that has captured our heart that when push comes to shove, we won't give that thing up for your name? We won't be willing to step out on the water in that situation. We won't be willing to go to that place or take that job or do that thing 
And Lord, in this moment, as we look to you, would we have a glimpse of the resurrected, triumphant Jesus? Will we see you who laid your life down for us, who did what we could never do and died the death that we should have died? That in this moment, we would take of these elements and know that you are good and you are for us and you are moving and there is no person too far gone. And in that, for those of us who have been following Christ for for multiple years or however long we've been following you, that we would know that that grace is just as powerful today as the moment it was when it saved us. That we are being saved now and transformed into the image of you, Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we love you. Would you transform our hearts in this moment and will we be launched out like arrows shot out of a bow so that the world may see you and know you. Lord, you are life. Where else are we going to go? Well, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.